Good evening. I would like to welcome uh, you all here tonight and uh, would give uh, particular thanks to the staff of the College of Humanities who uh, have done such a fabulous job of putting together the events of this festival. And of course, we are most grateful to our three speakers um, for the evening who will offer us a stimulating window into the religious world of the Roman Empire. First, we're gonna hear from Dr. Ed Wright, Professor of Judaic Studies, endowed Professor of Judaic Studies and Director of the Center of Judaic Studies here at the university. His work has earned him an international reputation. Among his numerous publications are a book entitled The Early History of Heaven, published with Oxford University Press in the year 2000. He has served as the president of the W.F. Albright Institute for Archaeological Research in Jerusalem and as the president of the Society of Biblical Literature Pacific Coast Region. Next, we will hear from Dr. Cynthia White, who is a professor of classics specializing in Latin literature of late antiquity and into the medieval period. Her publications span an impressive range of topics, including the writings of ancient Christians, the so-called church fathers, um, and an edition and translation of the Northumberland Bestiary, a 13th century Latin text of animal lore and spiritual guidance. Within the classics department, she directs the basic Latin program where she has implemented innovative pedagogical strategies that undermine the reputation of Latin as a dead language. Finally, we will hear from Dr. Grant Adamson, visiting assistant professor of religious studies. Dr. Adamson uh, teaches a wide variety of courses on Christianity in the ancient world. His research engages a vexingly problematic category in the study of Christianity known as Gnosticism, which is attested within a broad range of early Christians, but most strikingly in a collection of Coptic texts discovered in 1945 at Nag Hammadi in Egypt, on which he has published several articles and book chapters. Now, the study of religion as it relates to pressing social and political issues is perhaps now more than ever an urgent task for the academy. In view of this, the University of Arizona offers a growing number of courses and degree programs in which students can study an array of religious traditions in a non-sectarian manner and from within the disciplinary perspectives of the humanities. We are now pleased, as Professor Seat mentioned, to announce a new minor in, the, in New Testament language and literature. a field of study that incorporates not just the texts that fall within the collection we call Christian scriptures, but also the diverse religious communities that emerge from within and alongside the Jesus movement in the Roman Empire. And this panel discussion tonight is conceived in part to showcase the rich breadth of learning available to students at the University of Arizona, not only in this new minor and in religious study, but in closely related fields such as classics and Judaic studies. Now the theme of tonight's panel, resistance and resilience, are, uh, is especially timely in view of the events of recent months, the seemingly unprecedented degree to which the well-being of individuals and communities has come under attack. If it is not painful enough that record-breaking storms have devastated entire cities and an apparently legally armed gunman was able to kill 58 concert goers in Las Vegas, we now have an administration in Washington that has arbitrarily and cruelly targeted the most vulnerable members of our society. 
religious leaders and institutions have predictably aligned themselves on either side of this political divide. That this is so will come as no surprise to those familiar with American religious history. One thinks, for instance, of perhaps the most painful chapter in this story, slavery and its abolition, in which both those who def uh, defended slave ownership and those who repudiated it claimed to have the Bible on their side. Now, this uncomfortable dichotomy has persisted in different forms through the civil rights era and right up to the present day. Many courageous advocates for justice and equality have situated themselves within the traditions of the Hebrew prophets and the moral teachings of Jesus, even as their opponents have styled themselves as champions of traditional biblical morality. Now, these paradoxical appropriations of biblical religion are to some extent explicable in view of the complex range of texts that make up Jewish and Christian scriptures. The founding figures of both religions are depicted as agitators of emancipation. Moses, the legendary source of divine law in ancient Israel, was, first of all, a liberator of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt. With his people in bondage and oppressed against all odds, Moses stood up to the tyranny of the Pharaoh and demanded their release. The moment of divine deliverance that followed, known as the Exodus, has for centuries stirred human aspirations for liberty. In this tradition and in response to a later national crisis, the Hebrew prophet in the book of Isaiah declares, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, close quote. And it is not an accident that according to the New Testament Gospel of Luke, Jesus publicly reads precisely these words in the synagogue in Nazareth at the outset of his own ministry. Now, rather than Egyptian slavery, the Jews suffered under a repressive Roman regime. The repeated theme of Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This necessarily stood in juxtaposition and indeed in conflict with a Roman imperial ideology that justified its expansive military domination as sanctioned by their gods. Over against this, many of the sayings attributed to Jesus resound as unflinching denunciations. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Indeed, the so-called Lord's Prayer is fundamentally seditious. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That the capital charge against Jesus in the Gospels is that he was allegedly the king of the Jews is suggestive of how strongly anti-Roman resistance was associated with him. Nevertheless, even as these founding religious personalities, Moses and Jesus, represent absolute resistance to oppression. Not all authors in the Bible were able to follow this trajectory to its fullest conclusion. Indeed, the laws of Moses, though emanating from the Exodus, do not abolish the institution of slavery. Rather, the book of Leviticus justifies Israelite ownership of Canaanite slaves. And similarly, in the New Testament, several authors inst uh, instruct Christians that rather than resist 
they must submit willingly to imperial rule. And moreover, slaves must subject themselves happily to the authority of their masters. So any reader of the Bible or any student of Judaism and Christianity may reasonably be left perplexed. If a God exists and is active in the world, does the deity side with the rich and the powerful? Does God authorize military expansion and conquest? Or does God identify with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the enslaved? And if so, then perhaps resistance and revolution are divinely sanctioned moments of human progress. Now, each of our presenters will explore these dynamics from a different angle. For some, as Professor Wright will describe, resistance was expressed through imagining a future and decisive divine intervention in which the wicked would be judged and destroyed. For others, as Professor Wright, White will show, it entailed a repudiation of patriarchal hierarchies through the practice of celibacy. Finally, as Professor Adamson will explore, for the Emperor Julian, the so-called apostate, his effort to rebuild the Jerusalem temple uh, aimed at a deflation of Constantinian Christianity, which had grown increasingly toler uh, intolerant of religious diversity. Now, at the end of the three presentations, we will, we will save some time for questions, but for now, I'm pleased to invite Professor Wright to come to the podium. It's a great pleasure for me to be here, uh, and I hope you can hear me in the back. For those of you who are standing, good. Uh, I am actually situated, Judaic Studies is actually situated in the College of Social Behavioral Sciences, but my work is thoroughly humanities. I work in languages and literatures. Uh, the administrative separation, there's a history to that. Uh, but it's my great honor to be here, and I'm so thankful that you're the dean here, and the leadership you're providing is, is truly inspiring and admired by people across campus. So I want to thank you for that uh, and look forward to great things. <clears throat> Resistance and revolution. Uh, Courtney was mentioning, we live in a day where we see all manner of resistance, whether it comes from uh, Catalonia, uh, whether it goes in the Middle East. And some of the resistance we see is, is our people acting against other people acting out against governments, acting out against neighbors. Uh, but this is a pattern that's not, not new. What I want to talk about tonight are apocalypses. Uh, you mentioned the book, The History of Heaven book, Early History of Heaven. In that book, I, I deal with several different apocalypses. And I have to tell you, my area of expertise is actually in Jewish uh, and somewhat early Christian, uh, what's called apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. Books that for one reason or another, we're not included in the Bible. And we know that there were people making decisions on what was included. And then I want to ask, why didn't they let these in? That's kind of a subversive question. And these texts are very interesting. When it comes to an apocalypse, raise your hand. How many have heard of the book of Revelation? How many think we're living through it right now? <laughs> yeah, some of you. Yeah, the book of Revelation came as a divine revelation, not as a tweet. <laughs> That's easy. Those are too easy. Uh, the book of Revelation, I want to talk about just what, it, what is a, an apocalypse. The other example you have in the Bible is the book of Daniel. 
You've ever heard of the book of Daniel. Another apocalypse, they're of the same kind. An apocalypse is a revelation. The word means revelation. Apocalypse of John, the revelation of John. The word is right there in the title of the first line of the book. And an apocalypse is a revelation. It's a revelation from a divine being, normally God or one of his uh, uh, associates, to a human recipient that discloses a reality that has one of two axes. This, uh, and I just start here, uh, in this apocalypse, the, the, the goal is in, in resisting and, and, and revolting is you turn to apocalypse, divine revelations that you claim that you received uh, to defeat your enemies because you can't do it in real life. You do it in your imagination. And the imagination is a powerful tool. This apocalypse comes as a revelation to a human recipient in the book of Revelation is John. And there is Jesus revealing it to him. And the, this revelation has one of two axes. The axis is uh, horizontal or vertical. Horizontal. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and one text I'll talk about tonight, are the horizontal. They talk about the future. right? What's going to happen in the future? Uh, that that revelation has its secret. You can't know the future apart from divine revelation. And when you look at a book like the book of Daniel, you notice how accurate it is. It's accurate, accurate, accurate up until about 168 BCE, which is when I know it was written because it wasn't a prophecy. It was written after the fact. And when it gets fuzzy, that's when I know it's written. The person has revealed their date. Uh, Daniel is one of those. It's secrets that are real. Other secrets have to do with the heavenly realm or hell. Tonight we'll talk about heaven. Hell I'll leave for another time. All right. Uh, we'll talk about heaven. So those are the two axes of these things. And these apocalypses are trying to influence your beliefs and behaviors. They want to change what you believe and how you behave. And it's a powerful tool. I was once criticized, in the Heaven book, I was criticized that this is coercive literature. And I think the person who said that was uh, probably a very religious person and didn't like me saying that about biblical texts. But that's what they are. They're coercive. They're trying to get you to act in a certain way so that you might avoid the terrible things that will happen at the end. We'll get to that. The first text I want to talk about is one of these apocryphal books. It's the uh, Apocalypse, the Syriac Apocalypse of Baruch, often called Second Baruch. This text is uh, one of these apocryphal books. It's uh, uh, extant only in Syriac. Syriac is an Aramaic dialect. So if you know Hebrew, uh, uh, you can come over to my, my office, and within a few weeks, we can be reading uh, Syriac. It's not that difficult. It's just a dialect of Aramaic. Uh, you see a text, uh, text of Second Baruch here. The author of this text, we don't know. It's attributed to this guy, Baruch, who was Jeremiah's scribe. And it was written long after the events that it describes, the destruction of Jerusalem. But what it really means is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, not the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in Baruch's day. So it's, it's, a, it's a trick. This text, uh, probably I would say, uh, late 1st and 2nd century B, uh, CE for this text. 
I use BCE and CE instead of BC and AD. So it means the same. This text is, um, has a fictive setting, Jerusalem in 586 BCE, but its real setting is sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE by the Romans. So this is a response to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and how people fought back against Rome in their apocalypses. This text is uh, a series of dialogues between the fictive author Baruch and God. And he holds God accountable. How can you punish us by a people more wicked than we? It's the question of theodicy. How can God be just when they're suffering in the world and the righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked? It makes no sense. It makes no, it's not right. If you regard yourself as God's anoint, God's chosen, then it's, it doesn't work. And it, it, it breaks your heart. It, it doesn't fit with your, with your mindset. It can't fit. They go back and forth, back and forth, and it's basically an argument with God. There's one you're going to win. <laughs> right? He has an argument with God. And so what happens in the end, he has these symbolic visions that show, ah, you triumph. In the end, God will enable you to triumph over your enemies, and they'll get theirs. So the message from this text is that if you persevere, God will take care of you. The text encourages, it's very interesting, the text encourages a very traditional form of Judaism, observance of commandments. So here's an apocalypse that's reinforcing very traditional values as a way to resist and overcome the Romans. We can't beat the Romans in the real world, but we can beat them in our minds. We can defeat them in our minds, and that's a powerful tool. And it enables them to transcend the problems they're facing. Um, transcending the problems they're facing is probably something we could use a little bit today. Um, this is a, a powerful tool. Syriac Bar Baruch is, is a, is a, uh, is a fun text. This solution uh, I have here is if you persevere, God will reward you by punishing the enemy in the end. Kind of like Book of Revelation. What happens in the Book of Revelation? You know, it's... I one time was going through there. Uh, New Testament guys will love this. How many times was the world destroyed in that book? Too many times, I think. It was so many percentages, it doesn't work out. Uh, it's to totally destroyed. And then it's rebuilt. Uh, Jerusalem descends from the skies, and then it's re-inhabited uh, by Christians. And 144,000 Jews, thanks a lot. Uh, it's nice to be included. <laughs> but it was those Jews who converted to Christianity, so this is a Christian text. And I, I asked my students, if God's all about love, what's that book about? Right? Everybody gets destroyed except, uh, you know, those who make it through. In Baruch, it's if you practice traditional Judaism. The second text I want to talk about is Greek Baruch. A, another text attributed to this guy, this one's in Greek. Probably a little bit later than second Baruch. It's another one of these texts that's little read. How many ever heard of this one? How many ever heard of second Baruch? Good. Oh, wow. Okay. You can... Uh... Join me in being the other three people in the world uh, who know this. These are, these are fascinating texts. Third Baruch is clearly a Jewish text. Second Baruch, I'm not certain. 
I honestly am not certain. I can read this as a Jewish text or I can read it as a Christian text. That's how, how somewhat un-Jewish its contents are. It could be possibly a Christian text. I honestly don't know. And I've written on this text. Uh, probably second century. It's a, a text, again, written as if it were Baruch in 587, but actually dealing with 70 CE. And its contents is an ascent through five heavens. That's the vertical axis. The others are the horizontal, right? The future. That's what we want to know. You can't know the future. I'd love to know. If I know the future, I'd go to Vegas and, you know, put money on the tables. Uh, I don't know those things. I don't know what's in heaven or hell, what's above or below. I can't know. I wrote a book, The History of Heaven, and whenever I give a talk on it, people say, well, what are your views? And I say, I don't know. Because I, I, there's, I, how can you know? I know what people believe. It doesn't tell me about reality, but it tells me what they believe. And that's the point of humanities. It tells me about their heart. And I know their values from that. And that's the fun part of our work. I can remember, these ancient guys who are dead. I can learn about the human heart. Uh, this text ascends through five heavens. What's the solution here? It's a different kind of solution. The solution is that heaven and hell exist now. That means there are places of reward and places of punishment. Baruch sees them as he ascends through the heavens. So he learns there's places for me, the good stuff, and there are places for my enemies, the bad places. And that convinces He couldn't know it apart from divine revelation. That's what the apocalypse is for here. Divine revelation. You can transcend your problems by knowing that in the end, you get to go to a nice place while all your friends get to go to hell, or your enemies get to go to hell. All right, not your friends. Your friends are with you. So this is a, these are powerful tools. It helped Jews and perhaps Christians in this text and certainly in the book of Revelation transcend in some ways Roman oppression. They're read to this day in churches, in synagogues. They're powerful tools. There are some churches who think they know that the book of Revelation is going on right now. Right? And they'll identify people who are going on, which is the power of the Bible. Right? It can always be reinterpreted and applied to a new situation. It remains powerful. There are modern examples. This guy, you know this guy. Most of us here will know him. 1993, he and his uh, Branch Davidian followers took on the ATF. And I was, uh, I was actually in Mexico at the time when this was going down. And I said, somebody said, well, you know, they'll eventually surrender. And I said, you know, somehow I don't think so. And I'm sorry that I was right. One of the few times in my life I've ever been prophetic, and I'm sorry I was. And I saw that fiery inferno. It was on a TV in a, in a shop we walked by. And, and I knew what happened. It happens in all different kinds of groups. That kind of apocalyptic imagination exists today. I'm teaching a course right now on the apocalyptic imagination. You're all welcome to come. And as long as we don't tell the dean. And uh, we can uh, explore this apocalyptic imagination and how it works today. If that one doesn't frighten you, I'm sure this one does. That flag is the flag of an apocalyptic group. If there ever was an apocalyptic group, these guys, the Ayah, the Islamic State, are that group in a violent, wicked way. These guys turn the apocalyptic imagination in the mind 
into policy. They, what they were doing was fulfilling the apocalypse in their view. And you look at their, the, their preachings and some of the writings and their online stuff, it is thoroughly apocalyptic. Their flag is meant to scare you. Those colors are purposefully chosen. And they're part of a long history, Islamic history, and flags and, and, and colors of flags. But that design and, and the color, the stark black and white, are meant also to frighten you. And like any apocalyptic group, you're either with them or you're against them. And they take care of you. The apocalyptic imagination is a powerful thing. Apocalypses are powerful. And they help people transcend problems, even to this day. Thank you. On January 20th, the eve of the Catholic feast day of St. Agnes, in a rural countryside of England, a divination ritual was practiced by young girls who were eager to see the face of their future husbands. That night, they performed certain mock solemn rites. All day, they fast from eating, speaking, drinking. In the evening, they bake a small cake <clears throat> in a thimble, and they carry it upstairs, walking backwards. They lay out their shoes going and coming, and they eat the cake. Then they jump into bed, and with their hands under their pillow, they have to look straight up at the heavens, not to the right or left, and say this prayer. St. Agnes, be a friend to me in the gift I ask of thee. Let me this night my husband see. If the ritual were performed correctly, her future husband would appear in her dream, kiss her, and share a feast of delicacies. The words themselves are so delicate in Keats's poem, quote, of candied apple, quince and plum, and gourd, with jellies smoother than the creamy curd, and lucent syrups tinct with cinnamon. The ritual was varied and widespread, like the stories of the martyrdom of St. Agnes herself. As you can see in this slide, the textual history of Agnes, a young woman who chose death over any violation of her person or her religious conviction, are found in classical and early Christian sources from the Greek Euripides to Livy's history to the poetic versions of Tennyson and Keats. Written in 1819, around the very day of the celebration on January 20th, Keats's poem, The Eve of St. Agnes, tells the love story of Porphyry and Madeline, quote, whose heart had brooded all that wintry day on love and winged St. Agnes's saintly care. As she'd heard old dames full many times declare, they told her how upon St. Agnes Eve young virgins might have visions of delight and soft adorings from their loves receive upon the honeyed middle of the night, if ceremonies they did aright. How the young Roman Agnes, who was martyred for choosing the Christian God as her bridegroom over the local prefect's son, that is for refusing earthly marriage, became the saint to whom young girls pray for marriage, and how Agnes's bold resistance to pagan Roman beliefs and her willingness to die for her Christian faith somehow were transformed into the curious marriage rituals practiced by young girls on the eve of her feast day in England, as Keats has told it, is the topic that I want to consider with you tonight, from antiquity to that modern reception in Keats's poem. 
When the poem was first published in about 1820, a review of it charged Keats with cockneyism, a kind of lack of sophistication, presumably for the divination ritual he describes, and which, according to one reviewer, revealed the poet's lack of pedigree and sophistication, even as he aspired to the highest levels of the literati. Yet Keats's poem is a rich amalgamation of texts from antiquity. There are elements of ancient Greek and Roman nuptial texts called epithalamia. These are poems that celebrate marriage as a social norm and as a mark of civilized society. Also evident are tropes common to ancient texts of po poetic texts of elegy, those famous love poems of Catullus and Ovid that celebrate the desperation of unfulfilled, thwarted, erotic love rather than marriage. The rich underpinning of his poem is, of course, the story of the young Christian Agnes, who refused earthly marriage to become a bride of Christ. In Latin, she's called a felix virgo. In the fourth century persecutions in Rome, Agnes suffers every torture inflicted upon her. Her acta, the account of her resistance and martyrdom, isn't a new story, though. It itself is a composition of elements of ancient Greek and Latin texts about a classical heroine, Polyxena, in Latin, a virago. Note that wonderful linguistics connection between virgo and virago, maiden and heroine. Keats's poem is wrongly characterized as myopic cockneyism. In combining that rich textual tradition of the martyrdom of St. Agnes with those ancient classical erotic texts and nuptial texts, the ones that hold up marriage as a social convention, often without love, and the ones that subvert those conventions in favor of passion. Keats has preserved elements of the political resistance at the core of Christian martyrdom, but he's also preserved elements of the literary subversion characteristic of classical elegy. Piety and poetry are both protagonists in this resistance. He's also preserved, probably not incidentally, Another important consequence of Christian martyrdom, the new social authority of young girls in Christian Rome and the subjectivity of their lives. According to the testimony of the three oldest witnesses, <clears throat> St. Agnes suffered martyrdom when she was 13 or 14. She's depicted with long hair, a palm, and a lamb, likely because the word for Agnes in Latin is, means lamb. She was martyred in the Circus of Domitian, which is now the Piazza Navona, where the Baramini Church, dedicated to St. Agnes, now stands and also houses her relics. I think you can see her skull there on the right bottom. She was buried on the Via Nomentana at the St. Agnes Church outside of the city, also erected in the fourth century by Constantine, where today we still read Pope Damasus's fourth century text about her, dedicated to her in this beautiful script. One day, it says, her holy parents recounted that Agnes suddenly left the lap of her nurse when she was still a young girl and willingly stomped on the rage and threats of a cruel tyrant. He desired to burn her noble body in the flames. With the little strength she had, she overcame her fear and with her loosened hair, covered her naked body so that no mortal might see her. 
youth, fearlessness, modesty. These are her attributes. Written in the heyday of the 4th and 5th century transformation from pre-Christian Rome to Christian Rome, St. Agnes's martyrdom attempted to harmonize several collected accounts, the one from Pope Damasus that we just saw, and those from other 4th century writers, Bishop Ambrose and the Christian poet Prudentius. Since she had consecrated her virginity to God, she refused an offer of marriage. She was accused to the prefect of being a Christian, condemned to be burned. The flames turned into a cooling shower and consumed her executioners, however. She was then stripped of her clothing, condemned to a brothel for refusing to sacrifice to Roman gods. But in the brothel, her hair covered her like a veil, and a white garment appeared before her. And when a youth looked at her lustfully, he was struck blind. Finally, she was stabbed in the throat or beheaded. There are different versions. And Prudentius provides the detail that after her death, she receives two crowns, one for her martyrdom and one for preserving a consecrated virginity. There are allusions to this story, many aspects of this story, in Victorian poets. Besides Keats's poem, Alfred Tennyson's 1837 poem, also called The Eve of St. Agnes, is best known. And there are many depictions of the story, especially among pre-Raphaelite artists, such as these by Arthur Hughes. And there are also several well-known illustrators of the, the published poems themselves. This is a pretty fantastic cover illustration. It's architectural inspiration, actually, by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a nice close-up. So the story of the virgin martyr Agnes, who, in refusing marriage, demonstrated a bold spirit of resistance, as both Virgo and Virago, maiden and heroine, was not created ex nihilo. Her story is a reworking of the myth and the accounts of a classical heroine Polyxena, who also died as a noble martyr for resisting marriage. She was the youngest daughter of Hecuba and Priam, the famed king and queen, last king and queen of Troy. She had arranged to meet Achilles, the great hero Achilles, who'd fallen in love with her. They were to meet at the temple of Apollo, but there, by prearrangement, he was ambushed by her brothers, who shot him with a poison arrow in his only vulnerable spot a spot he'd confided to Polyxena alone, his heel. According to Euripides, Achilles' ghost then appeared to the Greeks as they were leaving Troy to demand the sacrifice of Polyxena upon his tomb. She preferred death to slavery, which was her fate at the end of the war. She willingly offered herself to Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, who slit her throat over Achilles' tomb. The courage and sense of outrage and also the sweet detail that she arranged her clothing modestly so that she could be covered when she died are repeated in many subsequent accounts. In Euripides' account, Polyxena wants to die. If I didn't, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I could be called a lowly coward of a woman, she said. Why should I live? My father was king of Troy, ruler of Phrygians. I was born royal. Now that I'm a slave, I'm infatuated with death. Imagine some cruel master could buy me. 
the daughter of Priam, take me to his house, force me to cook, sweep, tend the shuttle, work day after day. No, it will not happen. That life is inconceivable. While the light in my eyes is still free, she says, I yield it up, giving my body to Hades. I'd rather die than suffer the shame of wearing a slavery yoke around my neck. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, 500 years later, we meet Polyxena again. Now she's torn from her mother's arms, led to the burial mound, and she engages with Neoptolemus, who's staring at hers, her, into her face, and she says, shed my noble blood. Nothing prevents you. Sheath your sword in my throat, and she uncovers her throat. Polyxena, for certain, has no desire to be a slave to any man. And the priest drives home the sword in her throat. Her knees give way and she sinks to the ground, keeping her fearless look of courage. Even then, she's careful to hide the parts that should be hidden and protect the honor of her chaste modesty. Now listen for Polyxena in those 4th century Christian accounts of Agnes' martyrdom. Ambrose writes, she was too young to be a bride, but old enough to be a martyr. And that too, when men were faltering in faith, and even hoary heads grew wearied and denied our God. They tried to make her light a torch at the altar of some vile deity, and she said, strike, strike me, and the stream of my blood shall extinguish these fires. They strike her to the ground, and as she falls, she gathers her robes around her, dreading any insulting gaze. Alive to purity, even in the act of death, she buries her face in her hands and kneeling on the ground, falls as purity would wish her to. Finally, the fourth century poet Prudentius, that maiden they relate who was not yet ripe for marriage, still a child, her soul aflame with love of Christ, withstood the impious edict to sacrifice to idols and abandon her faith. Dauntless she stood, nor did she shrink from her resolve, willing to give her body to torments, not frightened by the threat of a cruel death. So now let's briefly return to the bitter chill of a winter night on January 20th in Keats's poem, when the owl for all its feathers was cold, to consider how and why Agnes, the virgin martyr who shunned mortal marriage, in favor of a transcendent and virginal marriage to God, should become a young girl's avatar in a dream of her future husband. As we saw above, Agnes resisted orders to worship religious idols and desert her faith. In early Christian, as in ancient Rome, this would have been an act of revolution. A young woman under her father's jurisdiction was destined for marriage. As a civic obligation, her marriage was negotiated by her father for the good of the state, for the good of the family, she belonged first to her father, then to her husband. Madeline was also obliged to obey her father in matters of marriage. Yet, when we left her earlier at her family's ball, presumably a party in honor of the Feast of St. Agnes, she was refusing to dance or accept the attentions of any of the amorous young men around her. She kept her maiden eyes divine fixed on the floor and sighed for Agnes's dreams, the sweetest of the year. Porphyry, whose high passion 
is revealed in his very name, which means fire, arrives to the castle of Madeline's family on the night of the party, her passionate beloved, quote, across the moors had come young Porphyry with heart on fire for Madeline. Though their love is forbidden by their family's rivalry, this lover does not shrink from entering the castle, though it was filled with, quote, hyena foemen and hot-blooded lords. From his hiding place in her closet, he watches as she prepares for sleep and prays in the hopes of her dreams of St. Agnes. And in the poem's final scene, Porphyry wakens Madeline from her poppied warmth of sleep as he took her hollow lute and played an ancient ditty. In what Keats calls a solution suite, those ancient genres of epithalamia and erotic elegy combine in this song to transform their erotic, sensual, music, sweets, and passionate desire into something new, a mystical bond of marriage. Resistance had earned both Agnes and Madeline that reward with their chosen spouses. The same virtue, modesty, assertiveness, and public action we saw in Polyxena and Agnes also beats in the heart of young Madeline when the next morning she delicately and fearlessly, both Virgo and Virago, steps over those hyena foemen and hot-blooded lords and escapes to a future of her own design. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll begin. The fourth century was certainly a time of resistance and revolution in the Roman Empire. It was a time of resilience as well. After all, it was in the 300s of the Common Era that the great persecution of Christianity occurred under Diocletian and his colleagues. Then the tables turned as Constantine rose to power and became the first Christian emperor. He and his sons, especially his son Constantius, supported and encouraged Christianity while discouraging, even outlawing aspects of traditional Greek and Roman religions. Following nearly a half century of Christian rule, the tables turned back temporarily when Julian rose to power. He is known as the last pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate. In this talk, I'm going to do three things. I'll briefly position Julian's life within the history of the Roman Empire and within the history of early Christianity as well as early Judaism. Second, I'll mention Julian's efforts to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And third, I'll look at his work called The Caesars, where Julian uses satire against Constantine and the church. When he rose to power, Julian knew better than to launch another persecution of Christianity, which would only make more martyrs. Instead, his opposition took the form of building projects and the writing of polemical literature, as well as a few shrewd legal measures, such as his school edict that essentially banned Christians from education. Flavius Claudius Julianus, or Julian for short, 
was born around 331. Starting in his mid-twenties, he ruled as co-emperor. Then in his early thirties, he ruled as sole emperor from 361 until 363, when he died fighting the Persians in the city of present-day Baghdad, or near thereabouts. To put that in some context, Julian lived towards the end of the Roman Empire in the west and its transition to the Byzantine Empire in the east. He lived between the compilation of the Mishnah and the Talmud by the early rabbis, between the Christian Council of Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451, and he lived some 300 years prior to the advent of Islam. Julian was the nephew of Constantine, the cousin of Constantius. They were both the longest ruling emperors before him, both ruling as Christians. Julian himself was brought up Christian, but he converted to traditional Greco-Roman religion in his early 20s. Then this born-again pagan lived something of a double life for a decade or so until he became sole emperor. At that point, he felt he could worship the traditional gods of his ancestors openly, and he opposed Christianity just as publicly. From a Christian perspective, he was seen as an apostate, but as he and others saw it, he was a restorer of the old ways that had been trampled by Constantine and Constantine's son, Constantius. For instance, Julian reinstituted and re-emphasized traditional animal sacrifice in Greco-Roman temples. In keeping with that re-emphasis and with his role as restorer of past cult and custom, Julian tried to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. As he viewed it, Judaism, unlike Christianity, was a venerable and ancient religion that shared, or at least used to share with Greeks and Romans, the common practice of animal sacrifice. Jewish practice had been greatly diminished, if not entirely stopped, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the first century, some 300 years before Julian, as Ed discussed earlier this evening. But the last pagan emperor had ulterior motives. He wanted to rebuild the temple of the Jews, not so much because he cared for Judaism, he wanted to do so because he thought it would help him in his opposition to Christianity. A rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem would rival and even undermine the Christian building projects there that had been sponsored by Julian's uncle Constantine and Constantine's mother Helena. Projects such as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Furthermore, a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem would invalidate the prophecy of Jesus recorded in the Synoptic Gospels that the temple would be destroyed, no stone left upon another. Many Christians in Julian's day interpreted that prophecy to mean that the temple would continue in ruins and they understood its fulfillment to be a providential sign of Christian superiority. Julian sought to prove them and their savior wrong. He did not succeed in his efforts to rebuild the Jewish temple. Construction was interrupted somehow or another, and at any rate, Julian died in battle soon after construction began. If he had lived and ruled longer, 
perhaps he would have been successful, which of course is not to say that a critical mass of Jews would have welcomed his backhanded support and necessarily returned to worship in any sanctuary he had constructed for them. Julian took other measures to oppose Christianity as well. This includes the writing of polemical literature. His most well-known work in three books is called Against the Galileans. It only survives as fragments quoted by Christian apologists for the purpose of refuting him. But he also made pointed remarks on Christianity and other works that he did not wholly dedicate to what he considered to be the errors of the church and its scripture, and so Christians did not destroy these works. Some such passages are found in Julian's work called The Caesars. The basic plot line is this. The legendary founder of Rome, Romulus, now deified, throws a couple of dinner parties for the gods and for the souls of the dead Roman emperors. The one for the gods at the top of the heavens and the one for the dead Roman emperors in the sublunar realm. When everyone arrives, Romulus and the rest of the gods decide to hold a contest for best emperor. The winner gets to join the gods' dinner party above. Heracles nominates Alexander the Great for the contest, even though he was a Greek, not a Roman, much less a Roman emperor. As for the Caesars themselves, Hermes calls forward Julius Caesar, Octavian, also known as Augustus, and Trajan, who are singled out as the three most prominent military leaders after Alexander the Great. Then, Cronos and Zeus nominate Marcus Aurelius because he lived the life of philosophy. At last, Dionysus, god of wine, ecstasy, and even frenzy, nominates Constantine as a lover of pleasure and someone highly submissive to delight. The contest itself consists of two rounds of speeches by Alexander, Caesar, Octavian, Trajan, Marcus, and Constantine. In the final round, the gods ask the contestants to explain the motivations behind their accomplishments. Marcus, for one, says that he wanted to pattern himself on the gods, which in this text means to live a disciplined, ascetic life, having the fewest possible needs and doing good to the largest possible number of people. Whereas Constantine says he wanted to amass great wealth and then spend it freely so as to gratify his desires and those of his friends. At the climax of the narrative, Julian has the philosopher emperor Marcus Aurelius win, so Marcus gets to join the gods, specifically Kronos and Zeus. But in the end, the runners-up get to join their gods too. This includes Constantine. Alexander joins Heracles, Octavian joins Apollo, Caesar joins Ares and Aphrodite. Remember that Constantine was nominated by Dionysus, but in the end, that's not the god he joins. It can't be since he's supposed to have abandoned the traditional gods. He joins the goddesses wantonness and prodigality. That is, in Greek, trufe and asotia personified. And of course, Jesus. The text does not break off there. Constantine and his Christian sons are then tortured in a bit of revenge fantasy, not unlike 
the uh, apocalypses that Ed discussed. As Julian writes, the avenging deities nonetheless punished both him, that is Constantine, and them, Constantine's Christian sons, for their impiety and exacted the penalty for the shedding of the blood of their kindred. Note the order. First, Julian has Constantine and his Christian sons punished for their impiety, literally their atheism. That is, their abandonment of the traditional Greek and Roman pantheon. Second, they are paying for killing their relatives. Julian likely alludes to the death of Crispus, Constantine's oldest son, and the death of Fausta, Constantine's second wife. Constantine was rumored to have had them both killed the year after the Council of Nicaea. Julian also surely alludes to the subsequent deaths of his own father and brother, for which he held another of Constantine's sons responsible, namely his cousin and erstwhile co-emperor Constantius. The only reason that Julian even places his uncle in the contest for best emperor at all is so he can satirize him and the church. After Constantine joins the goddesses wantonness and prodigality and is about to join Jesus, Julian has Jesus utter the following invitation to the Christian emperor and to any other potential convert. He that is a seducer, he that is a murderer, he that is a sacrilegious and infamous person, let him approach without fear. For with this water I will wash him and will straightway make him clean. And though he should be guilty of the same sins a second time, let him but smite his breast and hit his head, and I will make him clean again. Julian's use of satire in this passage is overwrought. And Julian risks misrepresenting Constantine, who was only baptized on his deathbed, precisely because Constantine took baptism so seriously, it may be argued. Still, the literary references that Julian makes throughout his portrayal of Constantine are clever. He appears to refer to Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew. Come unto me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, and so on and so forth. Julian also appears to refer to the parable of the prodigal son from the Gospel of Luke, recasting Constantine as the wayward spendthrift. Furthermore, the entire text of Julian's Caesars can be read as a rewriting and adaptation of the myth of the soul in Plato's dialogue, The Phaedrus, where the charioteer of the soul aims to follow its leader god and join the feast of the gods at the top of the heavens unless the bad horse, the horse of desire, drags the soul down to be trapped in a 10,000-year cycle of reincarnation. In the Caesars, Presumably, that is the ultimate fate of Constantine, the lover of pleasure who wanted to amass great wealth and then spend it freely so as to gratify his desires and those of his friends, the Christians. To conclude and to circle around to the undergraduate minor in New Testament language and literature that Courtney spoke about, one of the courses in that minor is titled The Transformation of Society and subtitled Christianity in the Greco-Roman World. Cynthia designed it. I enjoyed teaching the course because it invites consideration of the changes that resulted with the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. 
I think one of the clearest ways to see what changed is to study what Julian did to reverse that transformation. Even if he had not died in battle at the age of 32 or so, I doubt he could have prevented the eclipse of Greco-Roman religion and the overshadowing of Judaism by Christianity. Among other factors, Constantine and Constantius had ruled too long before him for that to happen. So maybe the real question is, without imperial favor from Julian's uncle Constantine, would Christianity ever have gone on to become the world's largest religion and the dominant faith here in the United States? Thank you. <laughs>